Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Either you are with us or you are with the terrorists. If you've got health care already, then you can keep your plan if you are satisfied with it. Donald Trump is not going to be president of the United States. Take it to the bank. Together, we will make America great again. We shall never surrender. Never surrender. It's what you've been waiting for all day. Buck Sexton with America Now. Join the conversation. Call Buck toll-free at 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. The future of talk radio. Buck Sexton. Team, welcome to the Freedom Hut, D.C. edition. I'm here in our nation's capital, or I guess just outside of city limits technically, but I'm, I'm here and... Uh, Tending to some business and getting to speak to some old DC friends, and it's been it's been good. It's been good. We we have a lot to discuss today on the show. We have uh, much to talk about here. Eight four four nine hundred two eight two five. If you want to call in on the lines, so there are there are two competing. I'm gonna I'm gonna start with the some of the big think stuff right now. We'll get into some details of everything else later. North Korea on the State sponsor of Terror List. We'll talk about Lois Lerner not wanting her her uh, testimony to be uh, revealed to the public. Uh, you've got the tax bill. We'll talk about that a lot, a lot coming up later on the show. But but for right now, still biggest story in the country. Really, I think no no question about it right now is the sexual harassment purge of twenty seventeen. Uh, this is ongoing. It is it is claiming more and more careers with uh, each passing day. Many of them, it seems, rightfully so, or at least the accusations are fully justified and, and truthful. At some point, we may see more that are, are not uh, so obviously clear. We've already seen some pushback. I we can talk about um, the Roy Moore case later on the show if you would like to. I mean, clearly there are some who are saying there are some people accused who say, sorry, it's not, I didn't do it. So you can say whatever you want, but I didn't do it. But overwhelmingly, what you're seeing are people that are caught. They're caught and they are in trouble. But Al Franken is the one right now the Democrats are having a lot of trouble with. I'll get into a discussion of him in just a moment. But first, here's what I see happening. The Democrat Party is in need right now of a of a reason for its existence beyond just anti-Trumpism, right? The, the Democrats are looking for something to energize, energize their base, to mobilize themselves politically. And I see a lot of what's going on right now as having at least long-term ramifications for the 2020 election. Yes, for the midterms, but also the 2020 election. I think that Democrats have gotten on board with because this is remember driven by the media. Yeah, they are they are feeding some Democrats in the media to the lions. No question about it. They are not covering up for everybody the way they had for so long. Who was on their side, right? They'll always go after the other team, but now they're willing to let they're willing to throw some of their own team under the bus too. And I have to think why. I, I like to stop and ask why is this happening. Why would they do this? And what I've come up with is that you can see a long-term narrative. I'm not saying there's a conspiracy here, but I'm just saying 
that ideologically there's a reason that so many media outlets are now willing to, let's be frank, finally take sexual harassment seriously. Because they didn't before with Bill Clinton for a long time. They were willing to completely debase themselves. The media would debase themselves intellectually, ethically, and otherwise to cover for the Clintons, to cover for Bill Clinton specifically, who was accused of all manner of uh, illicit sexual conduct, including forcible rape, everybody. So the media was completely duplicitous, hypocritical, and just full of lies on this issue in the past. Now it seems they want to straighten up a bit for now. Don't worry. I don't think that they've all of a sudden developed a conscience. I think that they see long-term political gain in this. I have been telling you that they will weaponize this, and I know many of you would say they have already weaponized it against Roy Moore, but it'll, it'll continue, regardless of what you think of Roy Moore, it'll continue to be weaponized against Republicans going forward. Small infractions will be grounds for the outrage brigade to go into full effect and demand you know, resignation, stepping down, humiliation and ostracization from polite society, right, from public life. That's what the Democrats and the Democrat media will be pushing for in the future. But I also think that you can see the formation, the early formation of a narrative here, of a political arc, of of a baseline story, a, a foundational element as to why the Democrat Party should have the White House back again. And it's going to be the only way, the only way that we as Americans can make this admittedly sordid and disgraceful state of affairs with regard to Hollywood and a lot of people in politics and media, too. The only way we can make it right, the only way we can expunge the sin of sexual harassment and sexual misconduct as a nation is going to be to elect a woman president in 2020. That's what I that's what I see early stage right now. That's what I see is happening. And once you put it into that context, I think it starts to make a lot more sense. You also look at who the likely uh, who the likely candidates are for office. You know, Kamala Harris, uh, Kirsten Gillibrand and perhaps Elizabeth Warren. Um, but. This is not an I'm not commenting on any specific allegation or anything with I'm just saying there's you, you can see whether this is intentional or not. You can see the narrative forming, right? Whether this is in the back of the minds of some of these reporters or not, it will be used that way. So just I, I want us to all understand that because I think it will affect how this story continues to unfold and how it is used. Remember. The media created a a storyline of the Obama administration. Well, but right. I mean, I repeat myself. Obama administration, media, one and the same, largely about a war on women. When you had Mitt Romney as the Republican candidate, a, a more clean cut and in his personal life, honorable guy based on all accounts would be tough to find. Right. But he was the war on women. They were desperate, and they managed with some success, but they were desperate to pin that on him, and they did. The same Democrat Party that honored Teddy uh, Teddy Kennedy for decades, who was a, a philandering, uh, you know, boozing, womanizing, 
involuntary manslaughter committing lout. But he was the lion of the Senate. The Democrat Party has had to have a reckoning here, and I don't believe that it's because they've all of a sudden discovered morality or you know, found religion, so to speak. I don't believe the Democrat Party all of a sudden has changed the way that it views issues or policies or anything else, but they just know that they have a very a possibly very potent narrative for the guest for the midterms. And it'll be true on an individual race, state by state and you know district by district, uh, but also for 2020. That this is the only way to overcome the the sin of sexism is to elect the first woman president, of course, because it's going to be not, you know, Trump is going to be the Republican nominee, or I mean, rather the Republican incumbent. It's going to be a Democrat, right? So this story all lines up. So never allow the, never allow the politics to just fade completely out of the discussion when they're pushing these stories. Um, I wanted you to keep that in mind. And, and then you get into the Clinton aspect of this, right? Because there's a big stumbling block here. A big stumbling block to how do we make up for the sin of sexism in this country? Well, we elect the first Democrat woman president, of course. But what about the Democrat Party's support for Teddy Kennedy's passed away so people don't pay as much attention? But that was grotesque. If you haven't, I really do encourage you just Google Teddy Kennedy Chappaquiddick. Remind yourself of the details because the media doesn't want to. And I can say as a man who would like to think that he leads an honorable life. I mean, if I had any shred of honor or dignity, I mean, the notion that never mind if, I, if I'm if i having it, I mean, I've never been married, right? But never mind the whole affair component of it, which on its own is disgraceful. But that you would leave somebody behind to drown in a car that you had overturned because you were trying to get an alibi going for yourself is 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 just, it's beyond forgiveness. I mean, it's completely and utterly disqualifying is that's just the beginning of it but they didn't disqualify him teddy kennedy was the line in the senate and then uh bill clinton hey i'm just you know i'm like it's great triangulating president and i was so good and all he was they made excuses for him his behavior was completely disgusting and now they're trying to reckon with it or they're they're being forced to and the Dishonest impulses of the media are on full display for all of us when they try to do this. Uh, you will hear all manner of rationalizations and explanations for this. And we haven't even gotten into the Al Franken stuff yet. I will. That's coming up. But I just want to deal with the reckoning of Clinton and his sex abuse and how Hillary Clinton was his right-hand woman, so to speak, in smearing, in ruining in degrading women who Bill Clinton had at a minimum harassed and in some cases assaulted and or raped. And they almost elected a president, everybody. All the people in the media right now who are all weepy eyed about how, you know, we need to get rid of Trump and how Trump is so terrible. Oh, gosh, what are we going to do about Trump? They were advocating for Hillary, who was willing to do everything and anything not because she's such a devoted wife. Come on, let's not. We're, we're not naive here. Anything to support Bill to keep him in office because she was going to ride his coattails into office. That was the plan. And the same media that tells us that Trump is beyond the pale and and Trump is so uh, is so grotesque in his interactions with women, 
which I, you know, I, I just, it, it's very, it's really bothersome to me as well to see that they'll still, just because they want to, they'll still continue with those smears and they'll never put that to bed with Trump. They'll never let it go. Uh, on the other hand, they allowed Hillary to get away with being a complete enabler. I mean, Hillary was not just complicit, she was an accessory to shaming a rape survivor. She was an accessory to shaming women who came forward to talk about how the president, the sitting president of the United States, was a maniac when it came to sexual activity. I mean, just clearly had some kind of a problem, but was a predator. We had a president predator and a media running interference form and Hillary as the the head head of the run interference team. And they said that she should be elected the last time. It's just too much to stomach. It's too much to take. And yet now they want us to move past it or now they want to act like that didn't happen. Here's the truth about the whole Clinton situation. When people today, and there are many of them, bemoan the current state of our politics, when they say, oh, the truth doesn't matter, oh, we've become so tribal, we're so polarized, you can trace the zero-sum nature of our politics right now. You can trace it back to the Clinton administration in a straight line. You can trace the, you know what, anything for my side to win mentality, which when one side has it, guess what? The other side needs to fight fire with fire. You can trace that mentality back to when you had journalists who were saying depraved things about what they themselves would do in order to keep Bill Clinton in office. How they would make any excuse, anything. They would victim shame, victim blame, lie, you name it. The Clintons broke the system, and the Democrats have been trying to now act like, oh, we want to be the party of, of probity. We want to be the party of, of moral purity. When, in fact, you can look directly at all of the worst impulses in our contemporary political discourse, and it is the Clintons. The Clintons broke the system. The Clintons are, in fact, the ones, and the media running interference for the Clintons, carrying water for the Clintons, they are the ones that did this to this country. And you can also draw a straight line to the whole notion of the, the fake news and the the partisan acti- the partisan actions of journalists in favor of one political party. That was over the, during the Clintons, too. This is what we're all being forced to look back at now. And it's even uglier than many of us remember. I mean, I was a young, I was a young kid at the time, but I remember some of it. And now we see what was written, what was said. It's just ugly. And we see now that the Clintons are the ones that morality was thrown out the window for the Clintons. All right, we'll be right back. We saw this in 91. The Republicans gave up on their values in order to get Justice Thomas on the court. They basically called Anita Hill a nut and a liar in order to get Justice Thomas on the court. They empowered Bill Clinton in order to get the things that Stephanie says, all good and great things. But in order to get those things, they decided the ends justify the means. They decided that a tainted person was better to get what they wanted. There you have uh, ABC's chief political analyst, uh, Matthew Dowd, who... uh, I I think I'm going to try to I try not to go ad hominem, but says some of the dumbest things of anybody on TV who is paid for their opinion. Um, I think he is a 
Well, he calls himself an independent. I think he's a false flag Republican or he's a false flag, you know, centrist or whatever it is. His job is to go on TV and tell Democrats what they want to hear about the other side. As somebody who was affiliated with Bush Cheney, he was a political consultant for Bush Cheney. And I was chief political analyst at, at ABC, which uh, doesn't doesn't speak well to the level of conversation politics over at ABC. And I, I found myself uh, so annoyed by that soundbite that I actually, which I rarely do, uh, called him out on Twitter for it. And, you know, he's he had a bit of a little nasty response. And I'll, I'll let it go there because I don't like to I like to focus on ideas and what I do and not point out that there are some people who are uh, senseless clowns with with no business giving anybody political analysis about anything. But that whole soundbite right there encapsulates a point of view that you'll hear a lot of the media, which is, oh, okay, so they can't really get around the whole Clinton was an abomination thing. So what what do you, what do you now tell Democrats to make them feel better about this? Or what's the line from Democrats about why the Clinton era was so bad and so toxic? And it's, oh, it's because of Anita Hill and Clarence Thomas. I mean, it's just such a wildly either disingenuous or stupid thing to say. Uh, and and I, I can't let this go because I think it's dishonest. I don't actually think he's so dumb that he believes that. I just think that he's being dishonest because he knows that's what that audience wants to hear. Give them some explanation for how it's not the it's not the Clintons that broke the system. It's not the Clintons that the media was willing to do anything to excuse. It's Clarence Thomas and the Republicans. I mean, it's pathetic, right? You go back and look at those hearings. Look what was said. Look at all the women who came forward. You had one woman who was turned into a national celebrity for saying that Clarence Thomas, like, made a couple of comments. Didn't touch her. Didn't assault her. Oh, it was a huge deal. And that was just all about they they didn't want the elevation of a black conservative onto the Supreme Court. That's what that was. Anybody, Anybody who's not a complete imbecile, especially somebody who's a political analyst, should know that. But they're desperate now to find explanations for this because what's really changed about what's going on now versus the Clinton era, what's really different is now we have Fox News. Now we have the Drudge Report. Now you have the continued uh, dominance of conservatives on talk radio. Thank you very much. And we can fact check these punks. We can hold them accountable for their lies. We can go back and read the editorials, any of us. Written by the very same New York Times and Washington Post and ABC political contributors and whatever. Written back then and said back then in just absolutely unseemly and grotesque defense of Clinton's deprivations. And see how now they want to play the morality police. Well, I don't think so. Not that easy. It's not that easy to get away with fake news anymore, is it? And that's really the problem that they have to grapple with. All right, let's talk about Franken. Stay with me. There has been a concerted effort, starting with the creation of the Fox Network. Uh, It wasn't there when Bill first ran. It was one of the reasons he probably survived. Hillary Clinton admitting that what happened was that there were alternative media sources that were just beginning to chip away at the ability of the left-wing Democrat media to completely dominate control and manipulate the national 
news narrative. But if Fox, for example, then were what Fox is now, keep on Fox News was founded in 1996, only around for, only just getting started in Clinton's second term. If Fox were the ratings juggernaut in the late 90s that it became in the early 2000s, would Bill Clinton have been able to hold off? I don't know. But isn't it funny that she immediately goes into the right wing conspiracy side of things instead of understanding that what she's telling us is exactly confirmation of what I was saying to you before, which is that the biggest problem the media has now is not Trump, is not you know, white nationalism, is not any of these things. It's that any concerned citizen, anyone who cares, anyone who wants to know what's going on, can fact check these clowns in real time as long as they have Internet access. And we can get alternative points of view. We can find out what the other arguments are and we can know what the facts are. And probably most importantly of all, see what the media was saying before and what they're saying now. And I mean actual specific people who are pushing for different policies. Right. When when it comes to Bill Clinton, oh, come on, private sex life stuff. Let's not be weird. Let's not be a bunch of Puritans here. And now with whether it's any number of these new cases that of the disputed cases, right? Some are not disputed, but of the disputed cases, uh, the Democrats are they, they want immediate satisfaction of their demands for punishment. Not allowed to not allowed to get into any kind of a wait for facts or anything else. They want immediate gratification of their desire for scalps. And Hillary was just saying it for you there. So, you know, I'm not making it up, right? I mean, this is this is clear that with greater access to information and greater ability to verify information, Democrats and the media have been losing ground. Well, gee, I wonder why. So Hillary, basically Hillary was like, Buck was right. So thanks, Hills. High five. Now let's get on to the latest of the Democrats' fights over this, which has to do with Al Franken, which I mean, for I will tell you right now that Franken has another woman accusing him of uh, of misconduct. This is from the New York Post. A woman said Al Franken grabbed her buttocks as they posed for a photo at the Minnesota State Fair, leaving her feeling uncomfortable and gross, an accusation that comes just days after a former model said the Democratic lawmaker kissed and groped her in 2006, according to a report today. So Frank, there's another, there's photographic evidence with Franken, right? So let's not allow them to get away with this. Oh, Franken apologized. You know, he's taking full responsibility for his actions. And What choice did he have? He's grabbing and... You know, licking the face of a woman on on tape where you can see it. And also a photo of him grabbing a woman's chest while she's asleep, which was meant, which really was, by the way, this whole this whole storyline about, oh, how he thought it was funny. That's that was meant to be humiliating. Don't don't let him get away with that. I give much more latitude for comedy than a vast majority of Democrats in the media or politics when it's real comedy, when it's meant to be funny. That was meant to be demeaning. That was meant to be nasty. You don't do something, you know, you don't do something to somebody who's asleep and, you know, and, and take a photo of it unless you're trying to humiliate them. Wasn't, wasn't funny. 
at all. Wasn't funny in concept, wasn't funny in execution, was was wrong. Was a, well, it was an assault, was illegal. And now the Democrats who have spent so much time in recent weeks trying to tell us all that we need to take take accusers seriously and we need to listen to them and believe them. And now when they're pushed on the issue of what to do about Senator Franken, now there's now they have a Senate seat that could be up for grabs. And what they have is a bunch of non-answer answers to questions because they don't want to have to go on the record with this at all. They just they don't want to hear it. So here's... Uh, For example, when asked about this, Kirsten, I have to say the two hardest names for me in, in, you know, two hardest American names for me right now on the female side to get Kirsten versus Kristen. It's just Kirsten, Kristen. It's just hard to keep them separate. But she's Kirsten Gillibrand. Uh, I should know there's a, a, a gif going around of all the most common names in America by state. Very interesting if you can get a chance to see it. I was surprised that in my generation, really across the whole country, Jennifer and Jessica were the top names. I always thought Sarah was like, for my generation, everyone's name, everyone that I know is named Sarah. And a lot of Laurens, too, which I figured was because of the popularity of Ralph Lauren, maybe. I don't know. But uh, Sarah and, and they didn't make the list ever. Early on, it's Mary in the 60s nationwide. And it's amazing how many uh, it's, this is across states. Right. So. They do it by state, but Mary's most common name, and then it transitions into, uh, oh gosh, I can't remember now what it was, but uh, Mary, and then Jessica and Jennifer, and it ends up, and then you go into the Ashley and Ashley and Madison, by the way, Ashley and Madison, very common names, and then you end up with uh, Isabella, became wildly popular in the last few years, and then Sophia, yeah, I don't know, anyway, just as an aside. So back to Kirsten uh, Gillibrand, just trying to get her name right. Uh, she would not, when, when asked about this, when asked about this over uh, the weekend, whether Al Franken should resign, here is what she said. 15, please. Should Senator Franken resign his seat in the Senate? Well, obviously, I was really disturbed uh, by those allegations and very personally disappointed. Um, and I think the appropriate thing right now is to have an ethics investigation. What could possibly come out of that investigation? It seems as though most of the facts here are pretty clear. It's important to have the ethics investigation to not only establish the facts, but to have a process. What do you think is the bar for somebody to have to resign their seat? I I don't know, Casey. People will make their own judgments. I don't know. They'll make their own judgments. I think there should be a process. I think we need to find facts. Do do those responses seem like maybe they'd be applicable to another major political figure right now for some people? Does any of that ring a bell for what what an argument that may have been made recently with regard to another possible Senate seat in the balance? Yeah, there's that, isn't there? So the people of Alabama can decide is... According to the left-wing media, cowardice and and tantamount to uh, turning a blind eye to underage sexual abuse, but admitted abuser, admitted 
jerk, by the way, as well, Al Franken, the people of Minnesota get to decide with him. That's fine. Oh, okay. I I see. And and that is that is the double standard at work, my friends. The double standard. Now, I I know this is where. Oh, if I had some liberals calling it. Oh, what what Roy Moore was accused of is so much more serious than what uh, than what Al Franken is accused of. Yes, tr- no, that is true. But Roy Moore says that it's all not that it's all a lie. Al Franken isn't saying it's a lie, and there's video and there's uh, photographic evidence. So you know how do how do we gauge that? How does that factor into the discussion? It's amazing, though. Bernie Sanders was also asked about Al Franken. Here's what he said: fourteen. Do you agree with Senator Gillibrand? Look, I don't think that it's. Uh, I'm not going to answer. Our goal is to look back 20 years or 30 years. Our goal is to go forward. Do you think that Al Franken should resign? Our goal is to go forward. I think that's a decision for Al Franken and the people of the state of Minnesota. Uh, My understanding is that Al is a very popular senator. It's very popular. That has nothing to do with anything, right? This is about morality and ethics and conduct in office. How popular or unpopular candidates means nothing. But it's about power politics, the Democrats, ultimately. And much of what you're seeing is just posturing from them on this. Because they also, the American left is desperate to reassert itself somehow on the moral high ground of some issue somewhere. Right? They haven't been able to convince the American people that Trump is a Russian agent. So now they're looking for something else, something else that they can use as a weapon against the administration. And what we see for, I mean, that was with, with Sanders, that wasn't that great. We, we go from let the people decide in the district or in the state to, to Sanders saying, you know, that's a decision for Al Franken. So really let the Franken decide is what is what Bernie Sanders. You know, yeah, we'll leave it to him. Let 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 the let Al Franken decide his fate. That's that's one way to go, to be sure. Um, I see this continuing to play out. And oh wait, just in case, I, I played one uh, pseudo centrist whose whole on air persona is about uh, speaking down to Republicans and criticizing them and doing it in a way that pleases Democrat audiences. So I should throw David Brooks of the New York Times into the mix as well. Clip nine, please. I think it's important to make some distinctions among the different levels of sin here. It seems to me what Harvey Weinstein did uh, and what Roy Moore did as the highest level of vileness and should be career enders. Then there are other levels of of sin, which probably should be career enders, setting a predatory environment. Um, You know, whether it's Bill Clinton or uh, some of the journalists who have been involved. And then I would put Al Franken so far uh, in a different category, frankly. What he did was callous and narcissistic and insensitive and just pathetic. Uh, but if it's one time and if he can apologize and then do real penance, my first instinct is that it should not be a career ender. For him. Listen, all the, all the quizzling, all the gymnastics, all the, all the hand-wringing from David Brooks there. You'll notice that he, he separated out somehow Weinstein from Clinton, uh, Clinton is Clinton is credibly accused of rape on the record by a named accuser, as well as others for sexual assault, but for forcible rape, Weinstein's accused of forcible rape. I mean, Weinstein may be guilty of more forcible rapes or maybe have accused of more force in terms of the number 
but they're accused of the same crime. So why is Clinton? You'll notice how he did that, right? A little sleight of hand. Why is Clinton in a different category? Uh, oh, because was was David Brooks somebody who was writing during the? Oh yeah, yeah, he's been around the game a long time. He's been around the game a long time. How, how rough do you think he was on Clinton during all that? I don't know. I'd have to go back and check, but I'm I'm willing to bet that he could have been a little tougher. Uh, but he puts Clinton in a separate category. He also assumes that he he states that Roy Moore is guilty, as though Roy Moore has admitted that he's guilty, which he clearly has not. Al Franken has admitted he is guilty. These are important. These are facts, right? Roy Moore has said, I did not do it. Whether you believe him or not, he has said he did not do it. Al Franken has said he did do it. Yeah, I did it. That's what Al Franken's saying. That should matter for something in these discussions as well. But the most annoying thing about what David Brooks does there is that he, he separates Clinton out from the rest of it. As though what Clinton did, and that's the problem. The, the media right now, and they're in such prominent positions, and unfortunately they run a lot of they run a lot of the newsrooms, and they have a lot of power still. The, the boomer generation Clintonistas that are in charge in all these places, they, they say they want to come to grips with what happened in the Clinton years, but they really don't. Many of them made their careers defending Clinton. Many careers were made by being Clinton cronies. And whether we're talking about, you know, people at, you know, ABC in the ABC newsroom or people at the New York Times or wherever. They don't want their legacy to be known as, yeah, I I covered for or rather rode the coattails of a sexual predator named Bill Clinton. But that's reality. I'll be right back. I think it was less about the players and the father, the father of one of the Americans really seemed to have a problem with it. Um, frankly, it didn't seem like the, the father wanted the president to intervene, which I think would, would have been a sad thing if he hadn't, most likely. And does he, Matthew, does he want, does he believe that he really should have left the players in jail? Or? No, I think if that's the case, he wouldn't have taken the action that he did uh, and certainly acted uh, in order to help re- get those individuals released and brought back to the country. Matthew? Yeah. So following on that, um, if that's not how he feels, then why did he say that he should have left them in jail? Look, the president was was a rhetorical response to a criticism by the father. (laughs) Sarah Huckabee Sanders there having to uh, field questions about a non-controversy controversy the media has latched on to. And... Uh, it it involves the three basketball players who Trump helped get out of China. That they they shoplifted some stuff, and here's what. And I just note that as a, as a rule rule of thumb, everybody, don't break the law. Period, as you know, but you really don't want to break the law in a foreign country. I can tell you, I have friends, a lot of friends who have worked in the State Department over the years, and they will tell you that. Uh, you do not want to have to call like the consulate or the embassy or whatever and say, hey, I'm in prison. And I did something stupid and and wait for Uncle Sam to come to your rescue. It is not. You will be uh, waiting for a while and might be very disappointed. So keep that in mind. But in this case, Donald Trump, president, did help them out. And then one of the one of the players dads came out and said, uh, you know, Donald Trump, who or something? Yeah, who the. Uh, Mr. What is it? LeVar Ball, the father of LiAngelo Ball. And so then Donald Trump writes or wrote on Twitter, now that the three basketball players are out of China and saved from years in jail, LeVar Ball, the father of LiAngelo, is unaccepting of what I did for his son and that shoplifting is no big deal. I should have left them in jail. 
Exclamation point. Of course. Uh, this is a non-story. I, I mean, I, the president, look, the president did a solid for three young men. And, and, and I think that it's, you know, they were grateful. They said thank you initially. And then there was this little afterwards, this, this dust up. But I, you know, the president, he clearly was just being, he was Trump being Trump. I see that. What I found frustrating, though, were the claims that came out after this. And I, I think Morning Joe, actually, Joe Scarborough, fresh off the beach in Nantucket, hair poofed up as high to the sky as it can go, electric guitar at the ready. Yeah, you know, I'm just like talking politics here with Mika. Uh, he, I, I believe he was one of the ones who said that Trump's criticism of, of uh, LeVar Ball is yet another incident of Trump only criticizing African-Americans or something. And there's this stuff going around on Twitter. And I'm like, look, there are a lot of things that people who don't like Trump can say about Trump. And I say, all right, well, that's your opinion. But let's not pretend for one second that Trump doesn't have choice words and often harsh ones for anybody who happens to annoy him, stand in his way, or just get on the wrong side of him. Of literally any ethnic background, any you know, any gender, any religion, Trump is an equal opportunity smackdown guy. He'll, he'll smack down anybody, anywhere, does not care. So I was very annoyed to see that that was one of the takeaways from this. But anyway, Emily Zanotti is joining us in a few minutes with even more sexual harassment allegations that are out there now. New ones. The purge of sexual harassers continues. The avalanche of stories. There's just more and more each day. It is incredible how this continues and just is a story that does not seem to be going away anytime soon. We've got Emily Zanotti on the line with us to talk about the latest. She is a writer for The Daily Wire. Check out her latest at DailyWire.com. Ms. Zanotti, good to have you back. Thanks for having me. All right, give us some. I've been talking about this on the show already, but I, I just, by way of review, as well as I'm sure I've missed some, who's on the list today? So today, our most, uh, our biggest name today is Charlie Rose from PBS, of all people. I actually didn't see that one. What happened? So eight women have told the Washington Post that Charlie Rose, while they were working for his show on PBS, he walked around naked, he sent them lewd photographs, he made very descriptive phone calls to them, groped them, all just ran the gamut of alleged sexual harassment. And this is a guy who's been on PBS probably four to five decades. He's not exactly like the kind of guy you'd think would be out there hitting on 25, 35-year-old women. But yes, eight women have come forward and said Charlie Rose I will, I will tell you, Emily, I, there have been a few things that I've been saying for a while on this show. One is that for the and I was and anyone who listens knows as when the Weinstein stuff came out, I said, oh, the news business is is almost as bad as Hollywood. So get ready yeah. for that, uh, because it really is, because there's so many there are gatekeepers with tremendous power. They tend to be older men and they uh, there's a lot of young, very attractive women in the business, and whoever gets the job is really just at the whim of some of these old, lecherous dudes, and we know how that's been playing out. Now, I know there were some big stories that broke on that even before Weinstein, but I said, now that the floodgates have opened, you're going to see a lot more, uh, and so that's one thing. And the other thing is, 
I've I've been here. I've heard for a long time that Charlie Rose was super sketchy. So this is one of those that I couldn't come out and say anything because I didn't have anything other than rumor. But this doesn't surprise me at all, actually. Yeah, I mean, this is not actually very surprising if someone is familiar with how PBS works and how long some of these hosts have been in PBS. They've been there for an extended amount of time. And so they definitely wield a lot of power, particularly among people who want to get up into the higher ranks of news business. So it's not super surprising that these guys are uh, not the greatest individuals in the world. Yeah. And and Charlie Rose, by the way, his show was was going to be canceled years ago. And then a, a group of people banded together to like keep it on. I think they even raised money. So I mean, his ratings have never been very good. But there's a he's had some some super supporters that have kept him on the air. But I mean, yeah. I was looking at some of these guys I'm like, does Charlie Rose really think he's the only guy who can sit there and ask pretty obvious questions in, with a dark backdrop? I mean, no, there are other people who can do this. A like quiet voice. No, he's not. Uh, but he's also not the only reporter who got snagged today. The oh, who else? White House. The New York Times White House reporter, Glenn Thrush, actually a very respected reporter, also accused today of sexual misconduct with several people he worked with, several people who were under him, and in the workplace in various locations to other journalists. So he's our, our second man of the day. Okay, now, uh, now based on death. based on the, the purge of the perverts, uh, rulings that I've been making, or rules that I've been making up as we go here. From what I see, <laughs> if you have more than if you have more than three accusers, everyone just assumes you're pretty much guilty, right? So right. Charlie Rose, he, he, I mean, eight? No, I mean, no way. Eight. That's he's not going to shake that. Uh, but right. how many do we have with Thrush, with Glenn Thrush of the New York Times? Who, by the way, was the guy for those of you watching? Uh, him and Haberman are the New York Times reporters that are, I think, most associated with, like, speaking truth to power with the Trump administration. And SNL has actually shown Thrush. He always wears, like, a fedora yeah. or something. So go ahead. Yeah, he's he's kind of your quintessential reporter. He kind of tries to play up that look of a 1940s reporter. He's had four allegations of sexual harassment, all published on Vox.com today. Ooh, so over, exactly. so over, our three, over our three allegation yeah. threshold. Over a three allegation threshold. This is this is serious business now. And he's been suspended. I see this now on my computer as I'm talking to you. He's been suspended. Yes, he's been suspended. He has not yet been suspended from MSNBC, where he's a political contributor. But I think that's probably going to come here in the next couple of hours. Uh, he's been suspended for the New York Times pending an investigation. He's also been suspended from Politico and other places where he publishes as well. So he's looking at an unpaid vacation for the next yeah, couple of weeks. I- I got to say, I think that it's been a little surprising that you've had so many of these stories come out about uh, about journalists recently. And I know there have been some people who, you know, initially deny, deny, deny. But we haven't had I can't remember now in recent uh, in, in the recent. And there's so many of them that it is it is impossible or, or very hard, at least to keep them all straight in your head. But, Emily, you know, as a guy, if if somebody came out and was just completely uh, making stuff up or it was you would say that right so the moment whenever something like this happens and they say five you know with with Halpern over at MSNBC or with Thrush or the fact that there's not an immediate within like hours these are all complete and utter lies tells you a lot I think I gotta be honest you know if you're not willing to say that this is all this is all you know bull then I think we got a problem 
Yeah, and it's really interesting that most of these women are telling the same story. So when you look at someone like Harvey Weinstein, who's got dozens of allegations under his belt, literally, I guess, he has all 90 or so women tell similar stories about being seduced, being brought up to a hotel room or being brought to a bar and then to his apartment in the same way that these eight women have stories about Charlie Rose. They all talk about him walking around in the nude. They all talk about receiving weird voicemail messages. And these stories echo each other. And the more of those you have, the less likely these look to just be one person coming out of the woodwork and saying, well, I don't like this guy, so I'm just going to say something terrible about him. These are four or five or six or 12 people who are coming out and giving the exact same story. When when are people going to revisit that there was I forget what the book was and we're speaking to Emily Zanotti of the Daily Wire by the way um, who is fabulous in every way uh, when are people going to remember Emily that I think it was a, a book uh, that came out about Joe Biden and how he used yeah. to walk around female secret service just totally buck naked yeah Joe Biden actually has quite the history. <laughs> Everyone thought this was hilarious in the Obama years. They used to make fun of Joe Biden, how he would come and come up behind women and hug them from behind or he'd let them sit on their, his lap. It's interesting that people really haven't gone after him as a predator, largely because I think they think he's just a jovial former vice president. He's kind of funny with his little glasses, things like that. I think, can I just offer something? I think that's a construct, Emily. I think the media created this persona for him because he takes himself very seriously. They just created this persona because he would he would have these gaffes and then they go, oh, that's just Joe being funny Joe. That's just Uncle Joe. Yeah, exactly. But that's a product of the media. That's actually not who this guy is. I know people that have worked with him a lot and they're like, he's a he's kind of a jerk and he takes himself Mm -hmm. very seriously. Yeah, and he is the things that he did, it's sort of like with Al Franken. We've now seen two allegations against Al Franken, and in both cases, he just thought he was being funny. He thought it was just all a joke and not realizing that the lens of time can go back and look at what you did and say that's actually sexual harassment. It was unwanted conduct. Might have seemed funny in the early 2000s, but it's not funny now. And the same thing is with Joe Biden. Just because he's got this persona that the media has created for him doesn't excuse unwanted contact. And I've, I've got your, your stories here from the Daily Wire, Emily. Jeffrey Tambor from the show Transparent. He's mm-hmm. out, too. I didn't even I didn't look. I, I, I think that I'm pretty well informed. I can't even keep up with all this. This guy. He's what's he? He's was he in? Um, he's better known for some other shows, isn't he? What was Arrested it? Arrested Development. There we go. He's, he's the dad in Arrested Development. The dad in Arrested Development. Yeah. Right, so he's in a series called Transparent. It's a series on Amazon about a man who transitions from male to female later in life when he's already had kids and a twenty or thirty year marriage. He's accused of sexually harassing and saying inappropriate and lewd things to two actual transgender women who are on the show. So he says he didn't do it. He says that these allegations are being made up to make him feel uncomfortable. But the show was going to write him out because they said no one on the set has felt safe any longer just because of these allegations. So Jeffrey Tambor has now left that show and it will be filming its fifth season without him. I'm just wondering when when an actor is going to come forward, you know, particularly an actor and say, you know, this is all maybe it's happened. I just can't think of it right now. But it seems like so far each time this happens, Emily, there's not a lot of like that's a bunch of lies. It seems like these stories so far, particularly about the Hollywood folks, overwhelmingly true. 
The only one that we've seen that's really pushed back and been able to make any headway on that is Jeremy Piven. He said that he would actually take a lie detector test to prove that he did not engage in sexual misconduct with three women who accused him, and he passed that lie detector test. So those are always particularly reliable, but... It is a good sign for Jeremy Piven that the accusers are not being completely truthful. Yes, he he's the only one we've seen who's come out and said and not hired Marty Singer, who's this great um, defense attorney in Hollywood. He's he's not come out with a statement. He's not sicked his PR people on reporters like me. He's actually said I took a lie detector test and I didn't do it. So that's the only one that I've seen in now two months on this beat that's really made headway. Wow. And um, I'm just going to put it out there, Emily, right? There's going to be more. We'll have you back. There'll be more of these. Oh, I'm absolutely positive there will be more. All right. Emily Zanotti, everybody, check out her latest at thedailywire.com. Emily, stay on the beat. Let us know what's up. Will do. Thank you so much. Uh, We're going to roll into a break here, team. I need to talk to you about, uh, well... We'll talk about the tax bill coming up, and then in hour three, North Korea, now in the state sponsor of Terror List, and we've got a whole bunch of other stuff, so stay with me. It was not long ago that the federal government had to admit to us all that the IRS was engaged in political targeting. This is an established fact. This isn't something that there's any continued debate on. We know that Lois Lerner and some of her IRS fellow bureaucrats took it upon themselves to penalize Americans, to use the power of the Internal Revenue Service and to weaponize the tax collection agency with all of its investigatory and punitive powers for the purposes of suppressing the Tea Party in an election year. Now, they say that it was just it was complex and that, you know, there's this effort that's always a a part of this discussion that comes from the left to just doubt. Oh, we're just so incompetent. Yeah, we just thought anybody with Patriot in the name of their 501, uh, 501 group should be 501C4 should be or 501C3. Well, anyway, whichever one it is uh, that Lois Lerner thought that it would be okay to use the fact that people were uh, trying to gather together under political auspices uh, as a means to punish them, right? She was overseeing tax-exempt groups. So that might be 501c3s and c4s. I'm not sure. Um, Sorry, 501c4 tax exemptions. That's the one that we're thinking about here, not 501c3s. So 501c4s, she was using the IRS as a cudgel against people, and it was for political reasons. And now, this is the new, this is why I'm talking about it today. This is the news story here. Lois Lerner doesn't want you to know just how bad it was. Now, this is a problem. Well, it's a problem for a lot of reasons. But it's a problem because if it was just good faith errors made by Lois Lerner and other people at the IRS, if it was just... You know, they made mistakes, but there was no bad faith, no ill intent, no bureaucratic, politicized mens rea state of mind here intending to do this. Why can't we know the full facts? Here's what Fox is reporting today. 
Former IRS official Lois Lerner and her deputy are asking a federal court to keep their testimonies in the Tea Party targeting case private forever over fear of death threats and potential harm to their families if the documents go public. Lerner and her deputy Holly Paz filed a motion last Thursday to keep the materials, including tapes and transcripts of their depositions, sealed due to threats they have received in the past. Court documents reviewed by Fox News said the public dissemination of their deposition testimony would expose them and their families to harassment and credible risk of violence and physical harm, end quote. Okay, someone is going to have to explain to me. Someone is going to have to uh, tell me how it is that given what's already known about Lois Lerner, given what is a matter of public record, if we knew more about what her testimony was, it would be so terrible unless, and this is the key point, unless we don't know everything that matters here, unless there were reasons and there was evidence that would make anybody who heard it or knew about it believe that this was not in any way some accident, that this was the nightmare scenario, really, for any of us who care about the federal government being an instrument of, yes, defense of our rights and defense of the Constitution, not a not a partisan weapon. For any of us who have those concerns and have been concerned about this up to this point, that the IRS officials involved think that their testimony is so explosive that we can't know about it, that it should have to be sealed forever. Doesn't that then just tell us alone, without knowing anything else, we got to know what was said. We need to know what Lois Lerner said. I think the Obama administration, I'm just step back for the from the specifics of the secrecy request in this case. I think that the Obama administration got off very easy. Now, a lot of you are going to say, Buck, of course they did. The fix was in at the DOJ. Obama was a a hyper-partisan president that had the media covering for him at every turn. The Tea Party caused an enormous wave election for conservatives in 2010. And there was, yes, the deep state, the deep state element within the federal government that thought that they had to do something to protect Obama's second term. And all of a sudden, you have the targeting of the Tea Party. It was widespread. It was systematic. It abused people. And it may have stifled what could have grown into an equally potent movement in 2012. Because when you look at when the targeting happened, it was at a time to create maximum benefit for the Democrats, for Obama, maximum benefit because of the suppression of Republican conservative ideas at that time. Uh, that was key. The timeline is key. You look at the timeline and you can see why this was done when it was done. And Obama just kind of got away with this. Whenever people say that Trump is some threat to the Constitution, threat to the First Amendment, especially in the media, I always want to yell back at them. Oh, yeah. Who was the president who uh, whose Department of Justice authorized the uh, wiretapping and seizure of phone records of journalists? That was the Obama administration. Who was the president uh, under whose watch 
the executive branch tax collection agency, the IRS, was used for the explicit and, and openly now, we know this, used for the purposes of political suppression and intimidation. That was that was Obama. Right? I mean, I, I could go down a list. I'm just this is just off the top of my head. We go into much more. He was given such a pass for all of this. And there was this pretense in the media that, yeah, you know, it was a few IRS people at a field office and no big deal. That was a lie. That was fake news. And we've never really gotten the full truth of what happened with the IRS. There were destroyed hard drives. I mean, when you go back and you dig into this, and I'm not talking about conspiracy theory stuff. I'm talking about the facts on the record with the IRS and its weaponized targeting of the Tea Party. And how the federal government was used to betray the American people. You go back and you look at it, and it stinks to high heaven. It really does. And now, sure enough, Lois Lerner and company don't want us to know what they said in depositions. Don't want us to have access to the facts. Sorry, it's not classified. It's not about national security. We should know. We have a right to know. With that, my friends, I'll be back in just a few. The New York City subway is not something that I'm sure a lot of you spend much time caring about, right? And and I get that. Unless you're listening to the show and you live in New York, you're like, Buck, why is the New York City subway a a thing that you're going to talk to us about on the radio show? Well, here's here's an, an important it's an important lesson. Uh, it's an important lesson for why public sector unions and corruption. And just local politics are, are are as toxic and ridiculous as they are. And there was a piece in in the New York Times over the weekend. How did the subways get so bad? Now this is this is the largest city in the country. The subway serves a metro area. Well, New York City itself, the five boroughs, has eight million people, and it the subway is getting worse and worse. And when you dig into why it's corrupt political uh, corrupt political side deals and nonsense going on, but also I mean public sector unions, there is so much money. I mean it is astonishing. So much money that goes into the New York City subway system, um, and the people who work for it are making unbelievable unbelievable uh, amounts of money. I mean, there are people who are supervisors who are supervisors in the MTA subway system in New York City who are making $300,000 a year. These are public employees, everybody. Three hundred grand. Uh, now, you could say, oh, Buck, well, that's what the market will bear. But no, that's where public sector unions come in. That's where you see that there is an unholy alliance. And this is true in any number of places across the country. So wherever you are, if there are any Democrats in charge, I promise you, and there's a public sector union, look at what happened in Wisconsin. You are seeing this happen, and you are dealing with the effects of having Democrat statists who, remember, the Democrat Party is the party of the state in this country. And the statists are are supporting and voting for Democrats and vice versa. So public sector employees, ideologically speaking, are, are overwhelmingly going to be Democrats, going to be left. And 
that's why what ends up happening is you have in cities or localities anywhere across the country, whether it's public school teachers or New York or not New York City or or uh, you know mass transit workers or just bureaucrats who run the run the local uh, you know town hall or the state house or whatever, they are because of the fact that they can often get pay increases that vest over time and their benefits packages are delayed and there's all these different ways that they can increase, they can get their pay increased and the politicians want the support of the unions because it's a major voting block and their families will vote too, right? They create single issue voters, these politicians who are working with these public sector unions, they create single issue voters and the incentive is then just on the uh, politician, whether they're talking about a mayor or a state legislature or whomever, you just keep the benefits going up and up and up, keep the pay going up, and you end up paying uh, a whole lot more money than people would get on the uh, on the private sector side of things. Uh, you, It is routine, for those of you listening, think about this, okay? It is routine in New York City now for subway workers, MTA workers on the executive side to make $170,000 a year. That's a lot of money for a a public sector employee. I mean, that that is some serious cash. And why? I mean, is there is there some reason that that is happening? Is there some? Well, yeah, because people want to get reelected, and it doesn't come out of the mayor's pocket, right? It doesn't it doesn't come out of uh, it doesn't come out of the politicians' pockets who are voting for the increases. So they get to keep their jobs. They get to feel good about themselves because the public sector employees are making more money. And they say, oh, well, you know, I'm helping our, our hardworking bureaucrats in this country. But it is just astonishing, absolutely astonishing how much money some of these public sector employees are making. And there was a time a few years ago, uh, right after the crash, where there was a focus put on all this. I think there was a... Uh, I think there was a city manager in, I want to say Vallejo, California, but it might have been Stockton. But he was a city manager for a small city that was bankrupt or close to it. He was making like $700,000 a year. And it's just crazy. You go back and people finally said, whoa, this is out of control. And there was a, a bit of a clampdown on that. But, I mean, you, you cannot... You cannot make this stuff up. I mean, when you look at how how profoundly dysfunctional public sector unions are across the country in terms of the costs associated with them and in the long term pension. I mean, this is it's destroying states like Illinois, public sector unions, They're destroying states like California. It's a long, slow decline, but it's happening. And I, I would encourage you to check out this piece in the New York Times about it, and, and you'll see just what I'm talking about with how you know, the money doesn't go what it's supposed to go to. Nobody's really in charge. The state's in charge of some of the subway. The city's in charge of some of the subway. You know, everyone's just pointing fingers at everybody else. And all the while, pension obligations are getting steeper and steeper. Pays, paychecks are going up. I mean, only in government is the response to failure. We need more. We need more money. Always, no matter what, right? Well, poor performance. Give us more money. The system is crumbling. Give us more money. You know, we need to do something about the corruption in the system. Give us more money. We'll get rid of the corruption. I mean, it's just, 
It's the same thing. I mean, they've got a fever, and the only prescription is more cowbell. That is how government operates, and it's certainly the case at the at the level of when you get involved with public sector unions. It is just astonishing. $300,000, everybody, for working for a subway system, okay? And lots of people making that. Hundred and seventy grand is like, you know, no, 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 no big deal. No big whoop. It is just madness. And I'm somebody who's had to deal with sitting on the subway. It's super hot and uncomfortable, and this trains get stuck between stations. And it's the biggest city in the country. Wherever you are, I'm telling you, it is worth learning about what's going on in New York because it's just a window into why, well, for one, why public sector unions should just be abolished across the board. I mean, even Woodrow Wilson, I'm pretty sure, was like, no public sector unions. That's, or maybe it was FDR, I forget now. One of them said, that's crazy. Okay. One of them said, that is crazy. And I'm like, yeah, it certainly is. And that's why New York City subway is running 65% on time right now, is wildly expensive. And you got a lot of people making hundreds of thousands of dollars to do their job badly. All right. We're going to come back and talk about cash. We'll talk about taxes. And we've got a Trump supporter who says, look, this tax bill's not that good. We'll talk about it right after the break. Welcome back, team. A lot going on in the world of politics. Uh, we are going to be, gosh, we're going to be talking about midterms soon. But even before then, we got taxes to talk about. And we got our buddy Ned Ryan on the line to shed some light on the tax situation. The tax man, the tax man himself, Ned Ryan. Just kidding. That sounds like you're an IRS agent. Ned Ryan's with us. He's a founder. <laughs> Founder and CEO of American Majority Action, former presidential writer for President George W. Bush. Good to have you, Ned. Hey, good to be back. But, you know, that was kind of damaging to my reputation there, Buck. I mean, I don't want to be associated with the IRS. Don't don't be saying tax, man. But, uh, yeah, no, that, that, that was a, mis, a misspeak on my part, sir. The, the, the expert on the tax, man. There we go. Well, you know, I, this, this Senate plan is troubling, Buck. Um, on a couple fronts, and I, I made a crack on TV today that if you're a hedge fund, private equity, or uber-wealthy real estate guy, you love the plan, uh, everybody else should hate it, um, you know, when it comes in regards to the Senate plan. So I kind of just spelled it out for people, you know, President Trump ran on closing the carry interest loophole. That is not done, has not been done in either the House or the Senate bill, and I think in some ways it's, it's been a favor by, uh, I call them the swamp dwellers in Congress, to protect their donors. And I got to tell you, too, I have strong suspicions that two of the guys involved in writing the bill, Gary Cohn and Steve Mnuchin, uh, had reasons to not close that, that carry interest loophole either. And again, for people to, who are listening to understand, these guys are in hedge fund private equity. They're paying instead of the 39.6 uh, tax bracket, they're paying at the 20%, saying that their, their compensation is really capital gains uh, and not income. And so, you know, Donald Trump ran on closing that. That's not being done. You know, the other thing to be aware of, too, is on page 94 of the Senate bill, uh, all of a sudden, real estate depreciation lives goes from 39 to 25 years. And for those listening to understand, that really helps uh, an older generation of real estate developers that want to punch out uh, and will cost Treasury hundreds of billions of dollars in revenue over the next 20 years. And then, then you start to get to us. You know, you start to look at the, the middle and upper middle class. Yeah, what happened? The forgot the forgotten folks, Ned. I thought we were all about the forgotten folks with this administration. I'm feeling pretty forgotten right now. No, I'm, I'm feeling extremely forgotten right now, Buck, because not only are these uh, some some people going to get a tax raise out of this Senate plan, they're temporary cuts. I think they're going to phase out in 2025. Another egregious part of it is the small business pass through tax rate and the Senate plan. House plan had it at 25 percent. The Senate said we're going to put it at 30 percent and also make it temporary. 
And the only positive thing in my mind in the Senate bill is them lowering the corporate tax to 20 percent, making it permanent, and they're going to push that off a year. And so I I have a hard time believing, I am hopeful, actually, Buck, that the, the plan as it now stands, that it will not pass the Senate because I think it is a terrible plan. In fact, could have massive implications and not good ones for Republicans in 2018. Oh my gosh! So now, now we're at a place where we would have to. And I'm just I'm taking what you say here and trying to run it downfield a little bit more. If you think it might be a good thing if this doesn't pass, but as you well know, Ned, that would then also mean that people would be saying, "Hey, Congress, what the heck do you do here?" They they have they have come. I, I honestly think Mitch McConnell and Orrin Hatch. Literally overdosed on stupid pills, Buck, in regards to this bill. I mean, this is a terrible bill, and at the same time, you're making the right point. They have had a full year to pass some form of policy, some reform that Donald Trump ran on, that people wanted to see happen. And now you have a bill that I think is terrible and could actually be extremely damaging to them. So my hope is that as the bill now stands, will not pass the Senate, that we go back and we have a debate about you know, again, what POTUS called for, what Trump called for, a flatter, simple plan that actually benefited all Americans. And I'll make this other point, too, Buck. If there are not if there's not a noticeable net increase in people's paychecks in 2018, I think that's a real problem for Republicans. Look, I, I have to say and I've been talking to uh, I'm, I'm down here in D.C. right now. I guess you're neck of the woods, Ned. And you know what? We, we are we are not too far from each other. Oh wow! Okay, hey, high five from afar. Uh, so, but I would just point out that I've spoke I've spoken to some of my friends down here who are Democrats today in the course of my my dealings and doings here, and I'm like, look, if I'm a Bernie Sanders esque liberal, I can't ask for a bigger forget about. And people are going to tell me, and I know I could get all like the former Reagan speechwriters on it. No, it's about growth. I, I I get it, but the ads write themselves. If the only thing that really comes out of this Republican Congress is a corporate tax break and not something, not middle class taxes are going down, you know, 10 percent overall or going down, whatever it may be, the ads for the redistributionist left write themselves for the midterms. That's just my political concern. I don't want to hear about the growth. I'm worried about the politics right now. And again, let's just not forget that uh, there are nearly two dozen House members, Republican House members, sitting in districts that Hillary won in 2016. This is not inconceivable if they botch the tax plan that Republicans lose the House. Uh, I think they could keep the Senate, but who knows? I mean, at this point, I'm still wondering why we have a GOP majority and why Mitch McConnell is leader in the Senate uh, after just a, I would consider, an utter disaster of a year. This is a real problem, politically speaking, for Republicans. They have put themselves in a corner. They have done it of their own stupidity. Uh, I, I've, I've also said that, you know, you could give Republicans the football on the 20-yard line, tell the defense to leave the field, and they'd still throw an interception. Yeah, they've done it. They have literally done it in such a way that they have put themselves in almost a no-win situation. They have to pass a tax plan that is real reform. What we have right now is not real reform. And so they've got to go back, I think, to the drawing board and figure out how they make something happen that is legitimately tax reform for the middle and upper middle class. And I made this point in my op-ed recently at the Hill about, you know, let's be honest, this isn't tax reform. Essentially, people are going to get $1,300 back over the course of a year. That's basically a nice date night 
uh, once a month. And so you think you're going to bribe us with a date night once a month and then hand off hundreds of billions of dollars to the private equity hedge fund and real estate developers? I, I had this buying. conversation in the Fox News green room with a whole room full of people, and I was like, that we, I, I need to stop hearing about how everything's going to be great because the middle class, you said, what is it, 1,300? I've heard, you know, a couple thousand. Look, right. a couple thousand bucks in people's pockets is great, but understand that if it's a couple thousand dollars in their pocket in 2018, we lose control in the Congress, you know, at the end of 2018. Guess what? Mm-hmm. They could start pushing for, you know, that, that 1,300 bucks you got, Uncle Sam might decide he wants it back with interest the next time they play with the tax code. That's right. I, I, I think this is, again, a massive opportunity that is being squandered I've got real concerns about what's being discussed right now. Um, you know, and, and again, I don't know, quite frankly, Buck, how they get themselves out of this situation. Again, I, the, the bill is coming to the floor of the Senate after Thanksgiving. I have a hard time believing we're going to see anything as it now stands happen before the end of the year in regards to tax reform. But I got to tell you, right now, what we're looking at, I don't want anything to do with what's being discussed in the Senate. We're speaking to Ned Ryan, founder and CEO of American Majority Action. You can follow him on Twitter, N-E-D-R-Y-U-N. Ned, uh, tell me this. What what could be done to make this thing better? I mean, how would we get Ned Ryan? And by the way, you're not alone. I know some other... Some yeah. other legit conservatives who conservatives. want the who want the president to do well, who are very concerned about this bill. What could be done to make it hit your approval? <laughs> You've got it. First of all, I've been making the argument: the small business pass through tax. I think should actually reflect the corporate tax. I think you've got to get it closer to twenty percent. You cannot go above twenty five percent. And so the Senate. You know, plan having it at 30% and making it temporary, that is absurd and a non-starter. So it's got to be 25% at a minimum, and it has to be permanent. You can't have seven tax brackets like the Senate plan has. Go back to four, get it, make it simpler. And then again, there's got to be something of in it for guys like middle and upper middle class. So there's got to be a noticeable pay cut on the tax brackets. You've got to simplify that. You know, I love the fact that they're talking about making the corporate tax Permanent, put it at 20%. Now I'm hearing Susan Collins saying at 22. Nope, has to be at 20, has to be permanent. If we can get a couple of those things done on the small business pass-through and get a little bit more for the middle, upper middle, okay, I can have that conversation. So it's possible. It's possible, but right now, not, no, not looking. Not. No, probably you, not, quick, quick, quick prediction before you tell us uh, whether you or, or the missus is in charge of, of the Thanksgiving turkey or you're like a sides guy or you do cleanup for Thanksgiving. Um, and that is, is this is not going to happen before the end of the year? No, it's not. I really don't because you have to, the, the, the House has passed its bill, Senate has to pass its bill. They're going to be wildly different. Then you got to go to reconciliation. Then that bill has to go through the House. Then it has to go through the Senate without changes, by the way. Then it goes to the president's debt to be signed. So we're kind of at the end of the beginning of the whole process. And the single best food item for a traditional Thanksgiving feast, Ned Ryan, is what? Oh, gosh. So I mash it all together. I'm one of those guys that puts it all together. It's got to be sweet potatoes. It's got to be real potatoes. It's got to be stuffings. It's got to be turkey. Put gravy all over it. Mix it up. Awesome. And then Wow, you go, with, you go with the Thanksgiving super plate. Oh, super plate. And then it's got to be chocolate, rum cake, and some pumpkin pie, and then I'm a happy man. Everybody, Ned Ryan doesn't mess around when it comes to Thanksgiving or America or the tax code for that matter. Ned Ryan, everybody. Ned, great to have you, man. Talk to you soon. Thanks, Buck. Team, we're going to roll into a quick break. We'll be right back. You are now entering the Freedom Hunt Tactical Operations Center. All sensitive programs must be kept strictly need to know. Team Buck is cleared. Roger that. And ready for the Buck Brief. The primary goals 
of our trip was to pursue the denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula. I want to begin this morning by meeting and by talking about the fact that we will be instituting a very critical step, and that'll start right now. Today, the United States is designating North Korea as a state sponsor of terrorism. Should have happened a long time ago, should have happened years ago. In addition to threatening the world by nuclear devastation, North Korea has repeatedly supported acts of international terrorism, including assassinations on foreign soil. As we take this action today, our thoughts turn to Otto Warmbier, wonderful young man, and the countless others so brutally affected by the North Korean oppression. This designation will impose further sanctions and penalties on North Korea and related persons and supports our maximum pressure campaign to isolate the murderous regime. Tomorrow, the Treasury Department will be announcing an additional sanction and a very large one on North Korea. And this will be going on over the next two weeks. It'll be the highest level of sanctions by the time it's finished over a two week period. There you have President Trump making it quite clear that they are going to continue to apply pressure to North Korea. You know, I think this is a a very interesting part of of the administration's uh, policies right now because there is a bipartisan understanding. Even Trump's most implacable critics, even those who they just hate everything Trump does, they recognize that North Korea, they have to recognize or else they're delusional. North Korea is a, is a major threat and that even if North Korea does not hit us with a nuclear uh, missile, right, which is the, the biggest fear or that it fires a nuclear missile at us, there remains the possibility or the I wouldn't say possibility, the likelihood, perhaps even the inevitability of North Korea doing other things that are deeply uh, destabilizing that are security threats to us. North Korean cyber capabilities, you know, people make these jokes about, oh, you know, Kim Jong-un, what's he going to do? Throw his floppy disk at us out of his, you know, IBM computer from the 80s. And and I agree that it can be kind of funny sometimes, except the reality is that North Korea has spent a lot of money on offensive cyber warfare capabilities that North Koreans are able to operate outside of Korean uh, territory, North Korean territory. And if you look back at the Sony hack, people believe that was North Korea in a political reprisal for a completely preposterous movie called The Interview with Seth Rogen and some other stoner actor guy's name I can't remember right now. Uh, wasn't a good movie, by the way. It was not a good movie, but... They they are very aggressive. And it, when you have a regime like North Korea that is already so cut off from the international community, there's so many there are so many efforts underway to uh, constrict North Korea's economic activity that for the North to engage for the Kim dynasty to engage in aggressive either cyber or other actions abroad just to raise money to to get hard cash. You know, we got to think of a, a rogue state. It means that it doesn't really care what anybody thinks about anything, right? It doesn't really care what the 
doesn't care what federal law or international law or anything else, U.S. federal law, has to say about its actions. So it's a cyber concern. It's an international criminal concern. And then when you add on top of that proliferation, think of it this way. What better method could North Korea choose to make our lives uh, difficult and to increase the sleepless nights that those who are making the the big, the high-level decisions about how to protect the homeland, what would be easier for North Korea than to take its nuclear and also just conventional missile technology and give it to whomever agrees to be a pain for the United States? I mean, most notably Iran, but that relationship is longstanding and people have been concerned about that rightly for a long time. But what are we going to do if we catch them proliferating? They're just going to say it didn't happen. They'll give some speech at the U.N. saying that, you know, the U.S. are warmongers and we're liars and we lied about Iraq. And we have this conception that there'll be accountability for North Korea going forward. There's not going to be any accountability. What are we going to do? We're we're already doing a lot to hurt them economically. And that's why this designation as a terrorist, as a state sponsor of terror is... Look, it's not gonna it's not gonna change the game. I, I don't want to overstate. Is it the right move? Yeah, I think it's the right move. Is it gonna do all that much? Probably not. And when I say do all that much, does it change the fundamental realities? As I've told you, North Korea exists for two reasons, right? The the the, the stated rationale of North Korea for its existence. The regime is in power so that it can defend the Korean people from what it views as outside aggressors. It's one way of just saying basically us and our allies and the South Korean puppet regime that they say is just an extension of the United States and to reunify the Korean peninsula. That's it. It's not really a, a communist regime in, in an ideological sense at all uh, because it has moved far away from that. Yeah, there's a lot of workers stuff and, there's, there's some borrowed elements of Stalinism, to be sure, a lot of borrowed elements of Stalinism. But there's no international workers' struggle that North Korea is trying to either tack onto or, you know, or, or gin up on its own somewhere, right? There's, there's not some effort to have international connectivity with the North Korean Communist Party, with all these other, right? There's no communist international. It is a hyper-nationalist, hyper-militant state that seeks to unify the Korean people under one regime and to defend them from all outside entities, powers, and interference. That's it, and that's all. It, it, it does not have aspirations to dominate the world. It does not have aspirations to ideologically unify with other countries. In fact, it's probably, I mean, I think you could argue it, it is the most xenophobic country on the planet, as well as very racist. I've told you many times about the book, the Cleanest Race by, I think it's D.B. Myers is the author's name. And it is an exploration of the racial, the racial propaganda that is very similar to the racial propaganda in Hirohito's Japan, which, of course, was contemporaneous with the racial propaganda of Hitler's Nazi Germany. All right, so this is a holdover, yes, of the Cold War, but it's also pre-Cold War. North Korea is pre-Cold War and some of its thinking, some of its ideology, and and, and many of its uh, concepts, actually. 
So state sponsor of terror is the right move. Trump administration is doing the right thing. But I don't want to set expectations for the effects of this too high because North Korea is not giving up nukes. It's not going to happen because the moment it gives up nukes, then it feels like, one, it loses a tremendous amount of prestige and credibility among its military apparatus, which is really, you know, North Korea is a is a dictatorship, a military apparatus with a country attached to it, right? It's not a country with a military apparatus. And the moment that they lose that credibility, that force, that nukes are the ultimate force, then they have real stability problems internally. And you do not want to when, – when you're in a country that will lock people up for generations because of a thought crime from one generation to lock up the children, the grandchildren – you do not want to be on the losing side of a coup, right? You don't want to be – if there's a transition of power somehow, which – how that would even happen in a cult of personality like the Kim regime, nobody even knows. But there would probably be a lot of lot of people that would be disappeared very quickly from within the upper leadership of North Korea. So it's zero sum for them. They're not giving up nukes. And we can try and entice them, induce them, coerce them, threaten them all day. There's nothing right now that leads anybody that I know or read or nothing that leads uh, leads them to believe that North Korea is going to give up its nuclear weapons. In fact, it's going the opposite direction, as we know, testing more missiles and advancing its nuclear program as fast as it can. So now North Korea joins a an infamous list of countries designated as state sponsors of terror, Iran, Sudan, and Syria. Syria's been on there since 1979, Iran since 84, and Sudan since 1993. So it's a small list, the state sponsor uh, terrorism list. But it is uh, it is important. It is it is potent. Uh, and but you know, let's be clear. Rex Tillerson was saying uh, Rex Tillerson is saying that this is still they're still keeping the diplomatic door open, right? They, they want to have that as an option. Play that clip, please, Ty. No, we still hope for diplomacy, and this is the, the timing of this is just one of us concluding the process. There is a very specific designation process that we have to go through at the State Department to be able to meet the criteria to make such a designation, and we wanted to ensure we had fully met all those requirements. Again, this is all part of just continuing to turn this pressure up. Pressure. That's what this is about. You know, this is carrots and sticks, and this administration is waving more sticks. You know, it's trying to do more to create uh, the beginnings and opening even for North Korea to step to to start to step down, to start to climb down from its psychotically bellicose posture. That's what they're hoping for. Can we get there? I don't know. I am. Uh, bearish on diplomacy with North Korea. And most of the people that I know that I think have some idea what the heck they're talking about when it comes to foreign policy issues, they're bearish too. But we got to keep doing what we can do. The administration has done the right thing here, and they will continue to apply pressure. All right, we've got much more coming up, team. I'll be back in just a few. We'll get into Team Buck Speaks later on in the hour. And also hunting, big game hunting. Is is shooting an elephant something that people should be able to do? Why would they want to do it? We will explore that together. I pose that question to you. Why would somebody want to shoot an elephant? We'll get back to that and more 
Stay with me. So sometimes, team, when I come back from a weekend, I like to share with you my thoughts on on films and uh, and the entertainment that is out there. And I just have to say that uh, I, I mentioned before the movie The Interview, which I, I wish was funny. Like I, I wanted to like it, but it it was not. It was not particularly funny. But I forced myself because I I just wanted to know how how bad can a movie be that you spend o- over a hundred million dollars on? I mean, I'm talking. Forget about. Yeah, I know people would say there's like Blair Witch Project ripoffs where somebody with a a handheld camera from the 1990s is running around like the monsters are coming for me. I mean, yeah, there's really bad stuff out there. But I'm talking about in this day and age, given how hyper competitive it is to get a creative project made. Uh it's it's amazing to me that you can still have a situation where uh you can still have a situation where a movie like The Great Wall could be made. You know, when when I was in high school, there was a restaurant that was close to the school called Great Wall Chinese Food. And and I really mean this. If you had taken a like a security camera and just showed the like, you know, did a reality TV show of the Great Wall Chinese restaurant and just all the because all these high school kids were all coming and going from there and, you know, acting like like teenage guys do and, you know roughhousing and throwing General So's chicken all over the place and everything. Uh, it would have been better than this movie that they spent $100 million on or something. I mean, more than 100 I, I don't even know what the budget is. It's tough to know a Hollywood budget because a lot of it is the marketing. This is what I've, I've found out. So whatever they tell you the budget is, that was just the production budget. The marketing budget can be it can be enormous. But this movie, the, the, Great Wall, the Great Wall, has Matt Damon in it, whom I think it's a... I take it as encouraging that you can have somebody like Matt Damon, who, in my opinion, is so uh, deeply lacking in talent and yet is uh, is so lacking in talent and yet has made a lot of money and become a very famous movie star. So I think that's a good thing, right? You can either look at that with envy or you can look at that as encouragement. And, you know, I'm the guy who's walking down the street who sees – a well now of course i only have eyes for miss molly but you know back in the day if i saw a guy who was you know a little uh little cuddly around the middle and uh maybe a little on the on the shorter side and i you know is just not not exactly cover of abercrombie material but with a, a a stunning uh a stunningly beautiful woman i think to myself you know maybe he's got a great personality and good for him you know this means that it's possible for all of us right this this means i've got a shot too and as I'm dating Miss Molly, I'm quite happy with, with how life has worked out. But, you know, I, I like to see the success of others as encouragement to further success. I don't like to see it as as sour grapes or bitterness or any of that other stuff. So with Hollywood, I mean, yeah, there's a part of me that's like Matt Damon is wildly overrated. And how can this guy, why is he so lucky? And then there's a part of me that's like, you know what? I, I try to push that aside in my thinking and just go right to, hey, if Matt Damon can play a uh, a a CIA super spy in the movies and people actually buy that and he can be this millionaire and everything, it's encouragement for the rest of us because it means that, hey, we, we all can be superstars, everybody. If Matt Damon can, we can too. Uh, but in this movie, which I only made it through 20 minutes of, 
it was it was one of the worst movies I've ever seen. I'm not gonna lie. It's hard to imagine a movie being worse there, for for no reason. And maybe they explain it later. There are weird like lizard monsters. The actual Great Wall, which is it's supposed to be like the Great Wall of China. There are weird lizard monsters that are trying to by the you know by the hundreds of thousands or something r- run up this wall and and eat people who are dressed like they're in a Power Rangers movie. I mean it's it's so bad that it makes me wonder how was anybody how was anybody able to turn in this assignment, turn in this project at the end and think like, yeah, I'm proud of this one. This makes sense. We did we did a great job here. I'm not trying to be a hater. I'm just trying to understand. I've had a few of these instances because I've been doing a lot of travel recently. And some of the big, big budget movies that are out there, I just don't understand how it's possible to spend so much money and have such a bad final product. You know, I think the movie industry is is in a lot of trouble. I know that right now they are relying on, and as they did with the Great Wall movie, they're relying on foreign ticket sales, which is why there's so much in the way of special effects and CGI, computer-generated imagery, which I think is is the worst thing to happen to movies in a long time. Because, yeah, they can be great. I mean, The Lord of the Rings, there are movies that do a really good job with it. But it also just becomes a a crutch for storytelling. And just, you know, more CGI explosions. That'll get people in the seats. But you're going to have content that's made in other countries. That's right. It's not. We're not going to have this Hollywood advantage forever where big-budget movies are made in in these production studios in this country. It's already been happening for a long time, but places like China and, and other major countries are just going to start building bigger and bigger. I know they have indigenous movie production already, but they're going to be building bigger and bigger facilities and studios. And, and, and then we're going to turn around and say, maybe that'd be a good thing because it'll force American storytelling to just be that again, to be telling stories instead of be glorified video games or trying to sell in the international market. But that's, the best way that I could describe the Great Wall movie. I mean, it was so bad. And I also watched the King Kong movie on a plane. I had no choice. I was just looking. I needed to watch something. It had a long week, a lot of work. Only so much reading I can do on a plane before I'm like, all I do is read. And, uh, you know, all I do is read, read, read. Um, and if any of you caught that horrible music reference, by the way, I'm, I would be very impressed. But anyway, I was watching the Kong movie on uh, well, I forget Kong Skull Island or something, and it was just an abomination. I mean, it was like a it was like a a form of torture to be stuck in that seat. I probably should have just looked at the seat back in front of me instead. So anyway, The Great Wall. I thought it maybe was the worst movie ever. I gave it twenty minutes, and I bet it is the worst movie ever, or at least that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. Uh, we'll be back with more here in just a moment, including a discussion of hunting big game. I don't want to hear that. Be right back. Welcome back, team. So, you know, there's been a lot of discussion recently about this uh, whole situation with, well, with Zimbabwe in terms of one of the worst and longest serving tyrants in the whole world is, in fact, uh, on the way out, it seems right now, which which is a very good thing and one that we should all be, although not really entirely clear what's going to happen there. But then you have a, a corollary issue to this. And it has to do with Trump and the administration's position on elephant trophies. Now, I, I here's here's what Reuters reports on this as of uh, a few just a few hours ago. 
that conservation groups, quote, sued the U.S. government on Monday over President Donald Trump's decision to let hunters bring in lion and elephant trophies from Zimbabwe days after Trump said the move had been put on hold. This got a lot of people really fired up. Now, the administration's position on this is that they want to wait and see and get some more information and more data. But if you recall the uh, Cecil, or I don't know if it's Cecil, if it's more British, is it Cecil the Lion or Cecil the Lion? There was a tremendous outcry when Cecil was shot. And people were, yeah, Jimmy Kimmel. Oh, yeah, that's right. America's conscience sometimes. Jimmy Kimmel, America's conscience when he's pushing for liberal causes. And he, he cried about the lion being shot. Uh, the, and there was that dentist who shot him. And was it, a, was it a legal shoot or not? And there was all this back and forth over it. And it was a global news story, which is pretty amazing, considering that lions, especially when they become uh, nuisance lions, when they eat somebody in certain parts of the world, they get shot. And nobody who's in the path of the possible predation of the lion gets all that upset about it, right? There was a very interesting, right around the time of the whole Cecil the Lion uh, fiasco, there was a piece written in the New York Times, I'll give them credit for publishing it, from somebody, I, I can't remember if I, he was from, he was from Southern Africa, I can't remember which country exactly, I want to say Botswana, but I, I'm, I can't recall off the top of my head. But he was saying that, you know, when he was growing up, there are plenty of lions, and lion was was a problem, a lion was an issue, right? I mean, the same way that some people think of, I, I, as I understand it, you know, polar bears up in Alaska. Yeah, it's, it's all cute when they're in the zoo, but if they're in your backyard all of a sudden going through your trash, it, it's an issue. So this guy wrote about how lions, we, we shouldn't think of them as like Simba from the Lion King. They actually can be dangerous and that some limited hunting makes sense in different capacities. So I, I, have, a, I have a tough time with, with this one because I can very much see both sides of the big game hunting issue. That's what I'm trying to get into here as a discussion. And I'm, I'm really going to want to hear from a lot of you on it because I'm sure there are many people listening to the show right now who are, in fact, or have been big game hunters in the past. I grew up in a family where there was hunting. Uh, I grew up in a family where going out into a deer stand with my dad with a jacket that was three or four sizes too big, quite cold, uh, if I always remember the way that it went, quite cold and very early. And I may have I may have uh, complained a little bit about this. I, I'm not going to withhold that bit of truth. I was, you know, I want to sleep. I don't want to go to the, the pheasant stand or the deer stand or the pheasant blind or whatever it was. And uh, but my dad would take me because, you know, father, son time and my older brother. And we would get drawn into uh, the experience of, of hunting, at least. But so I, I, I've been around it, understand it, and even went bird hunting myself uh, but a few weeks ago. So I, I totally understand this. But I will say that, you know, for example, with deer, with birds, you're talking about very healthy populations. And now I sound kind of like that guy Sack from Wedding Crashers. They're decimating the grub worm, grub worm population in this area, you know, and then. Vince Vaughn's like, oh, yeah, I'm stoked. Let's go kill some birds. Uh, you've, those of you who watch Wedding or have seen Wedding Crashers know what I'm talking about. That guy, Sack, is uh, – that was before he became 
He's the guy who ended up playing uh, American Sniper. Tyrone, what's his name? The guy, the actor, Bradley Cooper. Bradley Cooper. Um, that was the guy who was playing that role. Anyway, I so I understand. And and with deer, for example, we all know that deer can can get overpopulated in an area. They can actually starve and spread disease because of the overpopulation. And in the District of Columbia, I have had to explain to friends of mine, I'm down in D.C. today, actually. I'm visiting and, and doing some business down here. Uh, but in the District of Columbia, the deer population in Rock Creek Park was so uh, was so excessive, so heavy, uh, overpopulated by so much that they've had to bring in contract hunters to cull the deer population to actually take some of their numbers down. And they give the meat, the venison, to uh, soup kitchens in D.C. So it's it's a win-win for everybody. And it's a win for the deer population overall. It's a win for the uh, those who are in need of uh, some sustenance in the D.C. area. But some of the liberals that I know in D.C. are like, oh, my gosh. Well, first, they never believe me. And I say, Google it. You'll see it. And that, is, that is false. There will never be hunting in Rock Creek Park. Oh, yeah. Oh yeah, they they'll take they'll take some deer because there's too many of them. So I completely understand that. And as an avid meat eater who is probably eating meat 3 times a day, which is I'm sure not necessarily ideal, but I think it's ideal. As an avid meat eater, I can't for a moment pass judgment on anybody that engages in hunting for food, right? Cuz I I eat meat. So the the ethical aspect of it begins to begins to be a, a little more of a of a gray or not even a grayer. I'm I'm all in favor of hunting for food. I'm, I'm going to get into what's more of a grayer for me in a second. So I, I understand the impulse to hunt. I understand the need. I respect uh, ethical hunters and and you know it's I totally get it right. So that's all. But then I go into big game hunting, and I will just tell you I do not understand. I just don't understand. I'm I'm trying not to pass judgment on it because I haven't done it. I have done other kinds of hunting, but I don't think anyone's thinking that, you know, the, the couple of pheasant that I've shot here and there, that we're like losing the pheasant population, right? I mean, nobody thinks that this is going to be the end of it. Uh, but with elephants, I don't understand the appeal. I don't understand why somebody would want to shoot an elephant. I think that there there is a... Uh, a connection that we have to certain majestic mammals. I'll be honest with you, lizards, cold-blooded animals, I just don't care. Fish, birds, whatever, right? I mean, I don't th- I think you should be responsible in how you either, you know, in how you are interacting with the environment and I think that animal cruelty under any circumstances is wrong. But, you know, you are going to eat a bunch of fish, you're going to catch a bunch of fish, you're going to kill a bunch of birds, you're going to eat a bunch of birds, great. I do think that it gets a little more complicated for some of us when it starts to be a little bit closer to our warm-blooded members of the of the uh, you know animal kingdom that are species that we can actually view as being somehow attached to us or close to us or that we can form bonds with you know I, I can't really explain to you I'm just being honest about it I can't explain to you why it is that I'm I'm fine with deer hunting but if somebody, if I saw somebody mistreating a dog on the street, even one that I didn't know, there's a pretty good chance that I would get into a an altercation 
up to and including defending the animal with my, you know, with my own, uh, putting my own safety at risk, right? If I saw somebody kick a dog, I'd probably start something with a guy, maybe get into a fight. I'm like, I, it, it, maybe this is something that has even happened in the past. I, I have had words with people because of how they have treated dogs that were of no relation or I, I, I did not own them, but I have had very tense and terse exchanges with people who were nasty to dogs. So, you know, I, I'm I'm just trying to explore this a little bit because by the same token, I'm like, yeah, I mean, if you want to go out and, you know, you're going to go hunt some deer, totally, I understand that. Respect, right? Go for it. Hope you have some great venison. With elephants, with lions, with some of these more majestic creatures, it just feels like there's some, ah, there's some part of me that's not that that can't understand why someone would want to for sport, not for food. Remind that there's so there's no food aspect to it. I can't understand why somebody would want to. Sh- also, an elephant. Once you know, you know where they are. You know where the herd is. So you're just going to line up a large bore rifle and you're going to shoot it. it. It's not it's not going anywhere, right? So I don't understand it at all. I, I just so here I am thinking about how I'm somebody who supports uh, hunting and fishing rights and has done both hunting and fishing himself, but I do have my limits, and I think that elephant hunting is is uh, outside of what I'd be okay with. Um, I, I I know I, I break with some people on this, and I know conservatives are overwhelmingly not just like I said. I'm I'm pro hunting, but within limits. I think that there is at least some contingent of I don't know some contingent of of folks in the country who just will make the argument, and I understand this argument that they'll pay a lot of money for a hunting license. Remember, this is all, I'm not talking about, I'm not talking about poaching or any of that. I'm talking about ethical, legal hunting that there there are arguments that have been made and, and there's evidence to back it up that when you allow elephant hunting, lion hunting, uh, certain, I believe certain uh, species or certain types of rhinoceros, not species, but certain members of the rhinoceros family, I think you can also hunt with a license in some places Because the license is so expensive, it pays for the conservation for the rest of the herd. They pick an older animal that doesn't have that much time probably left anyway, has already sired offspring. And so I get it. I I understand the arguments. I understand. But I I still stumble on a little bit because when I say I get it, I know the arguments, but I can't bring myself or I'm, I'm unable to comprehend why somebody would want to shoot an elephant. That's all. So. We will see. I, I, clearly, the Trump administration also has its own uh, its own feelings about this because they kind of backed off. Originally, it was going to be elephant trophies would be allowed. And then now they're saying no elephant trophies. Maybe. It depends. Um, we, will, we will see. Uh, the administration was going to let people bring back trophies. And, you know, so I, I, you can still hunt them. But you just can't bring the trophy. And the point about that is, well, if you can't bring a trophy, are you really going to pay for the hunting? Um, apparently, uh, Reuters says here that Africa's elephant population plunged by about a fifth between 2005 and uh, 2015 because of increased poaching. So that's a different thing than legal hunting. Um, but wildlife activists here say that corruption is endemic in impoverished Zimbabwe and that money generated by big game hunting and meant for uh, conservation has been diverted to crooks. 
So the argument about pay a lot of money to Zimbabwe, it'll help the rest of the elephant population when you take one of them through legal hunting. Not sure that really works in Zimbabwe. So it's case by case. Anyway, those are my, I'm really curious what all of you think about this. If it's something you feel passionately about, uh, please let me know. Team Buck or official Team Buck at gmail.com. And also you can send me a message on Facebook.com slash Buck Sexton. But I I don't know. I like animals. That's what I, I just like animals. So I don't I don't want. See, I've, I've seen The Lion King too many times. I don't want to shoot lions. I don't want to shoot. I, look, I have friends who go bear hunting, and I'm like, I love bears. I'm not doing any bear hunting. It's just how, it's just how I am keeping it real. Uh, whatever you think, facebook.com slash Buck Sexton. We're going to close that out on the other side with some Team Buck Speaks. Stay with me. Welcome back. It is that time of the show where we hear from you, not necessarily on the phone lines, which I always enjoy as well, but via Team Buck Speaks. So let's get into it. And if you want to join in this fun, by all means, uh, send it to Facebook.com slash Buck Sexton. I hope you'll follow me there. So here's what we get coming in from TJ. He sent me a GIF that says the carpet sharks are on the hunt. It is two dachshunds in hunting gear so thank you for that and i will say that now i even got i i pointed one out to molly there's a there's yeah there's a carpet shark in my building i saw him i know he's i know he's around i know he's lurking just waiting for me to try to pick him up and show him some love so he can try to bite my nose off again carpet shark but i i said to molly there's a carpet shark she said what oh a dachshund i was like yup it is indeed um let's get to the next one here uh, Mark writes in, well, the fake news is full tilt this weekend and week. Help us navigate the constant nonsense. Uh, well, Mark, I hope I've been doing that on the show today, and I thank you uh, very much for writing in. Appreciate it. Francis writes in the following, love listening to your podcasts on iHeartRadio. Thanks. You make the drive into work a lot more interesting at 530 in the morning. Well, Francis, I am honored that i get to keep you company and hang out so uh please keep downloading the show and send me your thoughts again anytime you like on facebook and also pass it around to a friend uh, let, let, let the folks know about team buck uh so we have tyson writing in okay so just to give you a little backstory here tyson wrote the following buck love your show keep up the good work and fight for freedom we'll be traveling to new york city soon for surgery for my son with the best surgeon in the world for this type of surgery God bless America. My question to you is, what is the best pizza in New York? It might help my wife while she is in uh, while she's concerned over the surgery. Thank you. And shields high from Tyson. Well, I wrote back to Tyson. First off, thank you for your support of my show. It means a lot. I think the best pizza in New York is Keste or John's of Bleecker Street. The best burger is J.G. Mellon's. The best barbecue is Mighty Quinn's. But that is debatable. Good luck with the surgery, and God bless. That was what I told Tyson, and he got back to me just this weekend. Buck, we visited Manhattan for surgery for my son. Uh, thanks for the pizza tips. Good news, the surgery went well, and the pizza is good everywhere in New York. Although I don't know how anyone can live there, <laughs> even though the food is good. I prefer Nebraska, where my neighbors are a mile away. Shields high, Tyson. Well, Tyson, so happy to hear the surgery went well with your son. God bless. And yes, it is in fact true that in New York, getting good pizza is kind of like the equivalent of being in Greece and asking for a good gyro or hero, if you want to say it in the Greek way. Uh, or if you're in France and you want a good croissant or you're in, 
you know, Texas and you want good barbecue. It's just everywhere. It's, I mean, good pizza in New York is all over the place. Anyway, most importantly, so glad to hear that your son is uh, good to go. Surgery went well, and I'm glad you enjoy the pizza. Yeah, and for those of you listening, if you're ever coming to New York, you can send me. People are so funny. They're like, hey, if I write here, can you give me a suggestion for, you know, my, uh, I'm having an anniversary dinner with my wife of, you know, 15 years. We're in New York, and we love your show. Where's the best place to have dinner? If I see the message and I have a moment, I'll answer. (laughs) I'll give you, I love giving people tips about New York City. Now I'm going to get probably a lot of requests, but, you know, when I can, when I can. Maybe, you know what, I'll post some of my favorite stuff here for all of you to check out. Um, so that way I will, I'll put it out in the open where my favorite spots are in NYC, and that's one way to go. Um, Nathan writes in, uh, Buck, I've been listening to uh, I've been listening to you for a couple of years. I loved hearing Tyrone's segment tonight. Honestly, I prefer the shows with the least amount of callers. Uh, my guess is that you need to take calls sometimes, but it would be nice if that wasn't the case. Oh, well, I'm not going anywhere. Great show, and I'm a strong part of Team Buck. Well, Nathan, I'm just glad that you like the show, you enjoy it, and uh, honored to have you as part of the team. Without my friends, I'm going to be uh, heading to the train to try to make my way back to New York City to our Freedom Hut headquarters tomorrow. Uh, so please do download the show, and until tomorrow night, from NYC, Shields High.